Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, April 13th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. I'm lucky enough to be your host for the hour, and my name is John Olson. Last year, we covered nuclear weapons a number of times, and we'll do so again throughout this year. Today, we're going to discuss nuclear weapons through an in-depth discussion on treaties, arms reduction talks, and both non-proliferation and counter-proliferation efforts. Our guest today is Alan Carlson, who joined us earlier this year to talk about the Balkans. Alan Carlson is a retired Foreign Service officer from the U.S. Department of State, where he served for 25 years. Alan served as the State Department representative on the U.S. delegation to the 1991 Limited Test Ban Treaty Amendment Conference and advised on U.S. arms control policy during the 1990 and 1991 U.N. General Assemblies. At the beginning of the Clinton administration, he wrote presidential reports on nuclear nonproliferation in South Asia and coordinated nonproliferation meetings with India and Pakistan. Alan was named as the Senior Advisor on Disarmament to the U.S. Delegation to the Conference on Disarmament, a position he held from 2007 to 2010, which included participation in the U.S. delegations to the U.N. General Assembly and the New START Treaty negotiations. He was also offered positions at the U.S. NATO delegation and the U.S. mission to the Office or the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons. Alan Carlson has remained interested in arms control issues since retiring from the Department of State in 2012. Alan's foreign languages include Danish, Serbo-Croatian, French, and a smattering of Jamaican patois. He holds a BA in U.S. history and a JD in law from the University of Minnesota and a master's of military studies for the Marine Corps University in Quantico. And Allison, Alan Carlson lives in Stillwater with his wife, Tessa, and their three cats. Alan Carlson, welcome back to National Security This Week. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be back here um, covering another uh, area of, that I uh, worked so hard on for so many years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, ha- we had a great discussion uh, back in, I think it was early January, talking about correct. the Balkans. Right. Uh, so I'm glad to have you back today to talk about another area where you have great expertise, and that's on this uh, counterproliferation and uh, n- nuclear discussions. Uh, so back when you were here in January, and we are talking about the Balkans, uh, we even touched, uh, frankly, on the Russian influence in the Balkans. We did. And I would say that the world has changed dramatically uh, since we had that discussion. Well, certainly uh, the impact of Russia uh, has been brought back to the fore again. I think a lot of people had uh, counted Russia as down for the count, uh, even back in January, that um, the focus was uh, on Asia and primarily on China. Yeah. And now it's back to... And now, it's, <laughs> now, we're, now we have right. Russia, and the question of uh, uh, why do we pay attention to Russia when we didn't pay attention to other wars? Right. 
So maybe maybe we should tap into your lengthy experience at the State Department and talk briefly about the current situation in Ukraine. I think that might be a, a good starting point for our discussions Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Uh, especially on, on nuclear weapons. Uh, so as a career foreign service, foreign service officer, maybe, I mean, could you have imagined, frankly, the speed with which the liberal democracies of the world kind of came together, united to economically isolate Russia and to go after Putin's uh, inner circle of, of hyper-wealthy oligarchs? I, I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that comprehensive approach that the State Department would have had to pull together to pre-coordinate the response with our allies to right. the Russian invasion. Right. Talk a little bit about how well, that might have worked. It's very impressive. Um, it's not unprecedented. Okay. Uh, remember the uh, the U.S.-led response to the invasion of Kuwait back in 1990 now, mm-hmm. where uh, the United States reached out in foreign capitals in Washington and kept talking to country after country after country about why that invasion was important, what challenge that made to the international community and why the international community had to make a response. It's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of discussions. uh, It's a lot of work, and a lot of that falls on the shoulders of the career foreign service. It's even more true... Um, in the current Biden administration, because the Biden administration is new, yeah, they're not going to have all their ambassadors in place, right? And the discussions overseas and in Washington rely very much on the relationships that the American diplomats have built up with their counterparts, and that is the basis for all the discussions. Now, add, of course, the discussion alone is not enough. Yeah, you have to have. Uh, an ability to persuade uh, the other countries to agree with your position. And there, I think, an important decision made by the Biden administration early on was to take and put a career career diplomat in at the head of the CIA, Mm. Bill Burns, who, when I was working in the State Department, had finished up as the number three in the State Department, uh, the highest-ranking career position. Okay. And then President Biden said, I want you to come back and run the CIA, which, as you know, is unusual. It, it is a little unusual, yeah. Um, the CIA is usually headed up by either a in- career intelligence officer yeah, or by usually a washed-up politician. <laughs> yeah. So, the, uh, so what you're really telling me is that when we talk about the tools of national power and we talk specifically about diplomacy as one of those, those national tools— that having those long-term relationships where we are engaging our allies and friends around the world on a regular basis, uh, when a crisis like this happens, it's vitally important that we have already established those relationships and built that trust up with our allies. Absolutely. Uh, because you've built up, you've built trust. Yeah. Uh, on, top of the, on top of just a relationship, and relationships can be good, they can be bad. Uh, obviously, what the American diplomat is going for is a trusting relationship where uh, the word of Washington, uh, if in Washington or filtered through the for, uh, foreign capital, is understood to be trustworthy. Yeah. So when we decide, so the Russia invades Ukraine and we start tapping into all of our networks out there of, of trusted allies and friends to build that sanctions regime, regime that took a lot of coordination across all of Europe and, and elsewhere around the, around the world. 
So part of the reason I asked that question is because coordinating with our allies uh, and even our friends uh, seems like it's a rather important uh, thing to do when we talk about creating sanctions regimes and, and certainly for establishing treaties, right? Correct. Uh, especially treaties that include arms reduction talks. Uh, and, and certainly if those arms reduction talks include nuclear weapons. Absolutely uh, The United States and some of the other allied nations uh, within NATO, for instance, that do have nuclear weapons, uh, to a certain extent provide a nuclear umbrella of protection to other countries uh, in our sphere. So when we have to have those countries sort of on board when we start thinking about nuclear arms reduction talks and things along those lines. So in your experience negotiating these kinds of arms reduction treaties, how, how does that process work? And, and we can go more in-depth later, but just kind of broad overview. Well, let me start, let me start partway into the, the process since you've already raised the discussions with um, – with allies, with friends, mm -hmm. uh, mentioning NATO, uh, I'd also put in South Korea. I'd also put in South Korea in that into that list, for, yeah. for example. Um, there is a bargain in nuclear arms, uh, the non-proliferation bargain. Back in the, uh, back during the time of Eisenhower and Kennedy, a lot of people were looking at the future of nuclear weapons and seeing 20, 30, 40 states with nuclear weapons yeah. because they're a valuable deterrent. Right. And if you have your own nuclear weapon deterrent, you know that you can rely on it. And for the Western states in particular, the part of the nonproliferation bargain is we'll take care of the nuclear weapon part. Uh, you, Germany, um, you, Italy, you, Turkey... Uh, South Korea, do not need to have your own nuclear weapons. Right. So when we be, when the idea of coming up with nuclear weapons negotiations, when that's brought forward, one of the things that has to be done is to go to, uh, um, back then, Bonn, Seoul, um, even the neutrals, uh, Stockholm, and say, we understand that you have concerns. We are not backing away from our commitments to you, even though we're looking to cap or reduce, and hopefully some year, eliminate nuclear yeah, weapons. Right, right. Yeah, so, there, so that, that process is a long, involved process, not just you know bilaterally between us and, say, Russia, but a lot of discussions with our allies to make sure that we understand that nuclear deterrent is still available. Correct. And ultimately, not just with our allies either. Ultimately, every country in the world has a concern with nuclear weapons. Right. And, for example, on the negotiating uh, the Nonproliferation Treaty back in the 60s, um, the Nonproliferation Treaty was an idea pretty much pushed by London, Washington, and Moscow. Mm -hmm. Well, the other nuclear, uh, nuclear powers had an interest, and the non-nuclear powers, the Global South, had an interest. And they said, well, that's great that you don't want us to have nuclear weapons. <laughs> Here's what we need you to do. Yeah. And so they put in a commitment that, we, that the nuclear weapon states look at uh, arms control and ultimately disarmament. Um, it's a long negotiating process to get to a treaty. Right. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about this the specificity of that process as we go go through our discussion right. today. Uh, we so we just talked a little bit about kind of the ne negotiating mechanics. Uh, you know, there's right. more than just the direct 
uh, negotiations between, you know, say the United States and Russia. It's a whole litany of other things that have to happen as a part of these uh, negotiations on arms reduction talks, for instance. Maybe we talk a little bit about, we should probably set the stage, maybe we should talk a little bit about previous nuclear arms reductions treaties so that we understand more about the theory behind their adoption. Can you give us a kind of a rundown on the nuclear reductions treaties that were successfully negotiated, say, during the Cold War? I mean, we had some dramatic reductions at that time. That might help us give us a sense of the scale and the challenge the world faced during the height of the nuclear weapons stockpiling that the world experienced a few decades ago. And then we can talk maybe about post-Cold War as right. well. Well, during the Cold War, uh, at uh, one of the peaks uh, was under the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nixon, intriguingly enough, and Nixon and Kissinger decided that they wanted to put a cap on the nuclear arms race, that it was getting out of out of hand. And so they opened uh, discussions with Moscow. Now, now, was that a function of the number of weapons or just the cost? A bit of both. Okay. Um, you had tens of thousands of weapons. Yeah. Um, and the numbers were still going up without any uh, control. And these are not... Um, while originally they, nuclear weapons were conceived of as a, a cheap alternative to conventional arms, they're not that cheap. No, very uh, The cost of maintaining and securing and ensuring that they're operable uh, ends up being very high. Yeah. So Nixon uh, reached out um, to, Mos- uh, to Moscow, and so you had um, the beginning of discussions back then in that part of the Cold War, leading first to what were called the SALT negotiations, the Strategic Arms Limitations Treaties. Mm -hmm. And that's a very specific term, limitations. These were not reductions at this time. All they did was slow down the race. The race was still going up. Okay. The numbers were still going up. Um, But it led to some of the first real thinking about, well, how do we create an environment that's more stable um, for the, country, the two countries involved, in this case, the Soviet Union and the United States. Mm-hmm. And nuclear weapons are a big part of that. And not just the offensive nuclear weapons, uh, they were looking at the fact that anti-ballistic missile systems were becoming a possibility. Okay. But defense is not, in, in nuclear terms, defense is not an uh, unmitigated good. Okay. Uh, if you can um, defend yourself from your opponent's counter-strike, you can launch a, de- a first strike. You can launch a first defend strike. Your, defend yourself, sure. And then defend yourself. So that's destabilizing. So um, along with these initial SALT talks was the first real limitation, which was the anti-ballistic missile treaties. Um, instead of having, for the United States, instead of having a nationwide system defending every city, major city in the United States, all we defended ultimately were the missile fields, okay, in the in the Great Plains. Right. Um, this provided a, um, a level of stability, which then uh, enabled the two countries to start talking about strategic arms reduction treaties. Start. Okay. You had Start One, which did um, some make some minor uh, cuts. Uh, we. Moved on from Nixon into Ford into Carter, had start two, um, which was left, which was negotiated and kind of left on the table. Nobody ratified. Okay. Uh, because there, was question, there were political questions. Is this what we really wanted? Yeah. Um, 
the American politicians kind of looked at it and said, well, uh, I thought we were going for strategic advantage. This is equality. Why are we being equal with, with those those blasted commies? Sure. And so it was left on the table, and then the Soviet Union uh, invaded Afghanistan in 1979. Right, right. Um, which essentially shelved the START Treaty. Um, but um, that was not the end of uh, strategic arms uh, negotiations, but it was kind of getting closer to the end of the Cold War. Right, about a decade away. Um, what you did have um, is, you know... It, it is a complex issue, It's right? a very complex <laughs> issue. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, then re- magnifying the complexity, of course, was Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative in 1983. Right. Uh, and re- reopening the whole question of... Uh, anti-ballistic missile systems, the virtues and, and of defense over offense. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, uh, both that speech and that initiative and then a couple of nuclear scares in 1983, right. which we can go into, but we'll just take it for granted, convinced both sides we have to do something to start stabilizing the matters. Yeah. And so you had... Um, a breakthrough treaty between Reagan and Gorbachev, um, and this is only and, and Soviet Union is still in Afghanistan, right? Called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, which eliminated a whole range of weapons um, globally, but only between the United States and and Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which is um, the Intermediate Range uh, INF missiles, yeah. INF, yeah, five hundred kilometers to five fifty five hundred kilometers, and the warheads, and what that did is create a more stable situation for Europe. Right. In part because it took away a, a decapitation threat from Moscow. Right. Short range. Short very, range. Very firing. hard to detect. Take out all the governments in 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 Europe. Correct. Uh, hit hit all the military bases in Europe in a short notice strike. And so again, this is where arms control is contributing to stability in the relationship between the two uh, major superpowers of the time. Yeah, and and, and I have to think that the. Uh, the green movement in Europe was gaining strength during that time frame in the mid-80s. Correct. And so that also helped uh, solve a lot of the political challenges that a lot of our oh, allies faced inside Europe. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the Cold War. Okay. Uh, so for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired State Department Foreign Service Officer Alan Carlson. And we're discussing nuclear treaties, arms reduction negotiations, and related topics. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the treaties negotiated since the Cold War ended. Can you tell us a little bit about those treaties and how it's sort of reduced the stockpiles on both sides? Uh, I can. Um, it's intriguing to note that actually Bill Clinton wasn't that interested in arms control. Yeah. In part because he had inherited a greatly reduced American ar- nuclear arsenal. Um, Comparatively and- speaking. <laughs> Not even comparatively speaking. Uh, as um, as president, the senior George Bush had taken a number of, um, even in retrospect, startling unilateral moves to reduce the reliance of the American military and the United States on nuclear weapons. Sure. He pulled nuclear weapons off of the U.S. Navy surface ships. 
Um, he removed all nuclear weapons from the U.S. Army. Um, he, and he greatly reduced the, uh, the numbers and importance of nuclear weapons across the entire U.S. defense establishment. So that, that happened from in 89 when the Warsaw Pact collapses and then... Pretty much from 91 to 93. Okay. Yeah. And you'll see, and if you go back and look at the numbers of U.S. nuclear warheads, the number drops dramatically. Yeah. Um, what, where Clinton was more focused was less on writing legal constraints to prevent a, a re rebuild and more on reaching out to Moscow, uh, trying to bring them into a more Western uh, orbit, mm -hmm. and to secure uh, the gains uh, obtained by the end of the Cold War. Okay. The, the peace dividend, the as peace, it were. Well, not even the peace dividend so much. The peace dividend, people think about budgets. Okay. And the bu defense budget never really went down. That's kind of true, yeah. Um, but what did happen is... The Soviet Union, even though the United States um, was at its peak for nuclear war weapon warheads in the 60s, the Soviets had kept uh, building up right. all the way to the end of the Cold War. And so they had roughly 40,000 nuclear warheads. Right. That's a lot of nuclear material. Yeah, it is. And if you're getting rid of nuclear warheads, well, it's one thing to get rid of the machinery, the, the mechanics. What do you do with all this fissile material? Right. And... A, uh, an American nuclear physicist basically wrote a letter to the editor and said, well, why don't we buy it? And the Clinton administration looked at it and went, that's actually a good idea. Yeah. And so under a program which was later known as, almost immediately known as megatons to megawatts, <laughs> the United States purchased uh, highly enriched uranium out of, that was days before in Soviet warheads, brought it to the United States, blended it with more uranium to bring the uh, enrichment level down, and sold it to U.S. power plants. And for a period of about 20 years, from the early Clinton administration until a couple of years back now, about 10% of all our electrical, electrical power used to be a Soviet warhead. Wow. I, I actually did not know that. Nope. I had no idea that that it's actually happened. one of the great achievements of uh, arms control. Yeah. And that also, of course, happens uh, in a place like uh, Ukraine, for instance. We've Correct. seen that in the news lately where Correct. Ukraine said, hey, look, we're willing to give up our nuclear warheads in exchange for guarantees from the U.S. and, and Russia right. on Ukraine's future sovereignty. Correct. Um, now, the, um, the end of the Soviet Union saw the creation of three new uh, nuclear weapon states, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. Yeah. And all three um, were really not in a position to maintain a nuclear weapon system mm -hmm. and did not see it at that time as necessary to their security. And so the uh, weapons were initially returned to Russia, and then those are at the forefront of the weapons that were dismantled, Okay, basically. Um, you know, there's give and take here and there. Sure, sure. Um, most of these European states, including these three, had already received guarantees under the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the UN Charter, that other countries will not use force or the threat of force against their sovereignty and territorial integrity. Okay. Uh, all three said, that's great. Can you make it specific to us? <laughs> yeah. 
And so what we had was the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. But unfortunately for Ukraine, um, and this is where you get started getting into technical terminology, which is both technical and very helpful. Um, all three countries received security assurances. But unlike the NATO security assurance, we will come to your defense if you are attacked. Right. That's a positive security assurance. What these three countries received was a negative security assurance. People won't attack you, and we guarantee that won't happen, sort of. We sort of guarantee <laughs> yeah. that it won't happen. Clearly, that has not uh, played out as, as originally envisioned. No. So, so over the last couple of decades, we've also seen a, a few of these important treaties kind of lapse, or signatories uh, to the treaty decide to pull out of the deal. Uh, U.S. pulling out of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, Correct. for instance, uh, Open Skies, uh, the Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces INF Treaty, uh, rejuvenated under the recent administration, at least the Open Skies, I think, uh, and and the INF a little bit. Not so much. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean... Um, the INF Treaty, um, I've gone on in other forums about this for, for at length. The INF Treaty... Um, it had reached a point where really uh, the leadership, the current leadership in Moscow and the current leadership in the Washington, both really didn't want to comply anymore yeah. with, the, with the treaty. Started um, to impact sort of uh, how we thought we would employ weapon systems or deterrence uh, I think uh, more that uh, China was starting to build weapon systems that both countries wanted to build counters to. Okay. Um, but rather than a um, honest exchange of views, both countries simply accuse the other of violations. And in particular, the previous U.S. administration here, the Trump administration, simply said, well, you're cheating, we're out. Yeah. Even though there are consultative mechanisms built into all these treaties to resolve these sorts of disputes, rather than employ the consultative mechanism, they went, hey, there's an exit. And so they took it, sure. Um, and then with Open Skies Treaty, that was originally proposed way back by Eisenhower in '55, as a way to provide assurance and stability and watch um, opposing forces that they weren't building up conventional attacks. Right. Uh, this is before that's before satellites, right. and even before really effective U-2 flights. Uh, it was rejected at the time. It was brought forward again at the, after the end of the Cold War. Uh, it was a fairly successful um, treaty, multilateral in this case, 34 countries involved. Mm -hmm. And basically almost commercial aircraft are f flown over prearranged pre um, routes, uh, both as the time and location, uh, over other participating states with unclassified sensors and just taking a look at what's on the ground. Yeah, um, The United States stated that somehow Russia was cheating using this uh, in information gained to target conventional weapons on uh, critical installations in the West. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. As if this they didn't have access to... Uh, Satellites already. And Google Earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's right. Uh, and, uh, and exited the treaty. Yeah. And uh, last May, the Biden administration finally said, we're happy if everybody else stays in, but we're not going back in. Okay. And Russia had all, also exited uh, by okay. this point. So let me ask you this, because you're a career diplomat who has been involved in these kind of negotiating processes in the past. Uh, obviously, it takes a, a an incredible amount of time and energy to build up and get these treaties agreed to. 
uh, and all of these different control regimes and like you just talked about the mechanisms that are in there to address concerns during a treaty's uh, application time frame. Does it make it harder for diplomats to negotiate these meaningful treaties to control things like nuclear weapons or even biological or chemical threats when, when governments sort of, you know, at the sort of, I guess, the way the wind blows drives a political leader to choose one path or another? They find excuses to pull out of the treaties uh, without thinking maybe long term what the strategic implications are. I mean, look, I, I get it. <laughs> diplomats like members of the military, we serve at the pleasure of the president. So I, I understand it completely. But longtime you know, policy experts probably watching these short term political decisions being made without a, a coherent long term strategy, uh, you know, in the background, sort of guiding those decisions. That has always kind of concerned me as a career intelligence officer. Does it concern you as a career diplomat? It, it does, um, because these are difficult to build up. And um, they are they the longer they're in place, the more they build uh norms of behavior. Uh, Michael Kreppen makes this point at length in his lengthy new book on arms control, uh, Losing the Nuclear Peace, mm. uh, that, the, that on top of the treaties is the norm building okay. that is involved here. And the quick exits um, are further disrupting to the norm above and beyond the simple expiration of the treaties. I mean, the New START Treaty um, will now still expire uh, in less than four years. Right. 2026, is that right? In 2026. Yeah. It was originally for 10 years from 2011 to 2021. Uh, it was extended for five years by President Biden right after he got into office. Right. Because that's the deadline he was up against. <laughs> but the treaties themselves also very much build on each other. Um, one of the great examples was um, the Strategic Offensive Reduction Treaty, SORT, which we haven't mentioned before, Treaty of Moscow, yeah. back in 2003. Um Unlike the START, START treaties, unlike New START, which are massive volumes, define everything, the SORT treaty said, look at that treaty over there. All the definitions and all the processes are over there. All what we're coming up with here is numbers. Okay. Um, that's something you can't do if you keep exiting from those other treaties. Right. So that framework, I mean, it's, it sounds to me like going back to the earliest discussions where we limit nuclear weapons development, and then we start to do reduction talks, and then we start thinking long and hard about the different kinds of weapons and delivery capabilities and whatnot. It's all been, it's an iterative process. There's Absolutely. Arms, yeah. And so when you pull out, you de without a good reason, maybe, uh, or even with a good reason, you destabilize the process and, and de, well, you create new norms of uh, maybe... I mean, we like predictability when it comes to nuclear deterrence, we do. Right? We do. And so all of a sudden we have somebody like Vladimir Putin threatening the use of nuclear weapons uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine. Right. Or, or whatever it is he's doing. Yeah. Um, the other thing I found difficult with uh, President Putin's uh, approach here is he's using intentionally ambiguous language. Yeah. And so it's not clear... Um, so you've, you've, you've told us that since 2000, Russia has had a policy where we can use nuclear weapons if there's an existential threat to, um, to what? Yeah. To the, to Russia as a notion, to the Russian government as currently constituted, to you, 
Vladimir Putin staying in power. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and so that's actually one of the things that I find interesting is that most of the nuclear powers employ a certain level of ambiguity about when they might employ a nuclear right. weapon, which I think is probably strategically beneficial. I think the only country that has actually come out and said we will ha- we have a no first use policy is in fact China. Correct. I don't think any of the other countries have made that statement, well, have they? India Often India would tell you they they have a no first use policy. And, and you have studied South Asia nuclear challenges. I have studied the South Asia. Yeah. Um and Pakistan has a policy of, well, we will, of course, use our weapons before India does. If an extremist, our country is threatened to that degree. Yeah, if, and, if Indian uh, military is streaming across the border towards Islamabad, we might have to, be, we might have to use those. Correct. That's the, that, that's the Pakistani um, approach, right? Correct. But then... Um, you know, there's the question of uh, what is the uh, French policy, yeah. the British policy, the Israeli policy, right? Um, North Korean policy. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to say that we understand all of these policies correctly. I'm not sure that necessarily uh, it's consistent from year to year for any one of the, these countries as well. Because they also have changes in political leadership, except for they places have... like... North Korea. <laughs> Except for places like North Korea. But even there. Um, you know. Yeah. So, Alan, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your personal experiences in these arms reduction negotiations. Uh, maybe tell us a story or two. We're about halfway through the show right now. Uh, just talk a little bit about your, your direct experiences in some of these arms negotiations uh, discussions. Um. Give me your best arms reduction treaty negotiation story. My really good arms reduction treaty stories, I, I still can't oh, relate. Classified. Well, give us your next best. Next best. Um, <laughs> my next best. I'm going to go back all the way back to 1991. Okay. It's a good time frame. The uh, partial test ban uh, treaty, or limited test ban treaty, as the United States only calls it, just to confuse everyone else. Uh, has a provision in it saying it, the treaty can be amended. Now, it's a partial or limited ban because you could still test nuclear weapons underground. Okay. And in 1991, there was still a lot of testing going on. The United States was still testing in 1991. The Soviet Union was still testing in 1991. France was doing it. France was testing. Yeah. Um, the U.K. was testing in American fields. China was testing was testing there were a lot of tests and it was seen as an important factor in the nuclear deterrent to test these weapons routinely uh, not only to develop new weapons but to ensure that the old weapons were working Mm -hmm. that had uh, the support of the militaries and the support of the politicians in those countries yeah now to amend the treaty you can call a conference which um, the, the party members did and you can call that conference without the consent of the of the major powers. Okay. And so we were up there, up in at the UN for two weeks in January of 1991, discussing whether to amend the treaty. But of course, um, the nuclear powers had all pretty much agreed among themselves. They can have their conference, <laughs> and then we'll say no. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of that in nuclear weapons. Yeah. Where um, an extensive discussion is held on the pros and cons, and then somebody has a veto power and says no. But the intriguing thing about that is it still has an effect. Sure. Even if the major powers don't think it's going to affect their thinking, it has an effect. The United States stopped testing in 1992. Yeah. I think there's probably, you know, a scientific reason behind that, too. I think a lot of the countries around the world started to realize that the more we test, the more we introduce high levels of radiation into the Earth. Into uh, the Earth. We'd stop doing atmospheric testing. Right. Which was helpful. <laughs> Very helpful. <laughs> but, but, but we're still doing nuclear testing. And you realize, well, we're not really changing these designs that much. We know these are pretty reliable weapon systems. And to continue to detonate them, is there's a cost to that. There is a cost. Yeah. So I think there's also, I mean, you talk about these, uh, these discussions that other countries have who are not nuclear powers talking about Restrictions on nuclear weapons right. and whatnot, uh, that also has, I think, a long-term uh, public uh, opinion impact in the Very countries so. that do have nuclear weapons, certainly in the West and the liberal democracies, maybe not so much in uh, other places. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, for example, the very recent uh, nuclear ban treaty, the... Uh, I have now forgotten the, the official title. Yeah. Um, it was just a well, couple of years uh, ago, right? No, this, this is very recent yeah. uh, for entry into force. Uh, a lot of the non-nuclear weapon states got together and discussed, um, can we make it illegal in international law to even own nuclear weapons? Right, right. And they said, well, like with cluster munitions, with landmines, we can put in a complete ban. It technically applies only to the countries that sign. Right. And ratify. But it, it provides a moral um, bearing on the other states, mm -hmm. moral pressure on the other states. And there is an argument that over time it builds up a legal norm. Okay. Again, going back to the whole notion of norms. Um, now, the first country that signed and ratified the nuclear weapons ban, do you know what country that was? I, I don't, actually. Vatican City. Oh, yeah, that makes good sense. I guess that makes good sense. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired State Department Foreign Service Officer Alan Carlson, and we're discussing nuclear treaties, arms reduction negotiations, and related topics. Let's talk briefly a little bit about, uh, Alan, if we could, about nuclear game theory, right? When the U.S. negotiates with other nations in these arms reduction talks, especially around nuclear warheads, delivery platforms and capabilities, verification regimes— what, what is the strategy that's being employed? And the reason I ask this is it's kind of a game theory thing here, I think. Uh, we obviously want to maintain a strong nuclear deterrent, uh, but arms reduction talks, uh, by their very nature, they're, they're meant to ensure that both sides are going to give up something, right? You have to be willing to give up things in these agreements uh, with the, the, the folks on the other side of the table to get to some sort of a, a, a an end state, a desired end state. So what is it that we're actually negotiating when we talk about these treaties? Is it the number of warheads? Is it the delivery capabilities? Is it the verification? Is it all of the above? I mean, how does this work when you're at the negotiating table? It's all of the above, 
uh, number of warheads, delivery systems, verification, but not necessarily all at the same time. Okay. Talk, talk, talk more about that if you could. Initially, especially back in the Nixon era, it was going to be easier to use what's called national technical means, um, satellites, open uh, reporting, uh, anything that you can get your hands on that doesn't require the other side to cooperate. Okay. Uh, but does require them to not actively hide. Um, it Using those national technical means, it was easier to count numbers of delivery systems. Hmm. Bombers are large, and they sit out on, on uh, airfield air, aprons. You can track submarines when they're in port. You can track submarines when they're in port. Yeah. You can count missile silos. Yeah. And so it was easier to count those things which you could see. So that's where the emphasis was on delivery systems. Okay. Now, with um, the New START Treaty, which was negotiated in 2009-2010, came into uh, force in 2011, the emphasis shifted to warheads. Okay. In part because, and then we go to verification, both sides agreed to enhance verification, to enhance on-site inspection. Now, the old Soviet regime in the 60s hated the very idea of on-site inspection. Why would we let spies into our country? Sure. Why would we do that? Um, By the time of the New START Treaty, both sides kind of figured out, we can figure out ways that you can take a look. We can take the cap off of the uh, uh, nuclear missile, and you can count the number of warheads or delivery systems that are there and say, okay, we won't assume that this missile is large and therefore has 10 warheads. We will take the cap off and see that there are eight. Okay. Um, again, that's a question of being able to verify. Uh, that's uh, One of the better terms ever introduced into arms control was from Ronald Reagan. Yeah, trust but verify. Correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that whole process where we think through all the different... Uh, functions of a nuclear deterrent system, those are all on the table generally when we go into these negotiations? Quite often. Okay. Um, There are things which um, no one ever really kind of thinks about. Uh, Well, it's thought about, but it's not not on the negotiating table. Uh, One of those is the um, relative vulnerability and stability of nuclear weapons uh, delivery systems. Because the vulnerability and stability and accuracy of the of the various systems is not the same. Okay. They, oh, that's true. That's true. I, I, I mean, initially, when the first submarine-launched ballistic missiles were introduced, they were highly inaccurate compared to land-based missiles. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and obviously, with a bomber, since it takes a couple hours between decision to launch and the, and the uh, delivery of the weapon... Uh, the, the warhead, it's an inherently more stable system than, for example, a, uh, a land-based ICBM. Where once you push the button, it's... Once you push the button, you're not getting it back. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. Out of the silo. So I'm going to ex- assume that a good bit of your experience has been with Russia? Is that is that true? Or other countries as well? Well, obviously... I. I Across the board, a lot of the arms control discussions are with Russia. Yeah. But you have had experience with other countries. We do have experience with other countries. Um, Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. 
yeah, it'd be it's one thing to to negotiate with a a, a true peer competitor uh, on the numbers and delivery capabilities of nuclear warheads like with Russia. It's another thing entirely to negotiate arms reduction talks with, say, some of the other nuclear-armed uh, countries, North Korea, or even allies like the UK, France, and Israel. Uh, so is How fundamentally different are the negotiating tactics and uh, thought processes behind negotiating with, say, Russia as opposed to North Korea? as opposed to our allies. Well, with our allies we don't really negotiate arms control per se. Okay. We kind of what we have uh really is more of a um especially with Paris and London, a very open and collaborative approach. Okay. Um every uh October the UN General Assembly meets to discuss disarmament. And so we're there in Turtle Bay in, in the delegates lounge and anybody who looks over can see the United States and the Brits and the French uh, huddled together, heads down, as we discuss how we're approaching the uh, topics on the agenda for that year. Okay. So that's a very collaborative approach. Uh, it's obviously very different, uh, very, very different with North Korea. I have very little experience with North Korea. Okay, fair enough. I did work, uh, as you had mentioned in the introduction, with India and Pakistan on South Asia, mm -hmm. another hotbed of nuclear proliferation and right. missiles. Yeah. And there, and, and, and frankly, in my opinion, the most likely place for an actual nuclear exchange is between India and Pakistan. Very risky. Very, uh, I would have to agree with you there. Yeah. Um, when I started on South Asia, I started in what was the brand new South Asia Bureau, as it was then called. Okay. Uh, it had been split off from the larger Middle East Bureau by Congress, who felt that the State Department needed to spend more attention looking at India and Pakistan in particular. Smart move. <laughs> and part of that requirement was to create my particular job and a requirement that the President of the United States say, what are we doing to bring about nuclear and missile nonproliferation in South Asia? Okay. And those... Initial reports were unclassified. You can still find the second one, for example, on the Federation of American Scientists site. Okay. And we discuss what, why do they have nuclear weapons? Uh, why do they have missiles? What are the challenges? Where are they on the spectrum here? How safe and stable are these? Um, uh, is this environment? And there was classified annexes, of course. Sure. Uh, but... It, Part of the negotiation here is to sit down with the countries and discuss, why do you have nukes? Why, why do you have missiles? Where is your safety and stability? What kind of conversations do you have with New Delhi, with Islamabad? Mm -hmm. uh, um, how can we help? Can we, can we uh, bring you all together? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but we try. We, we tried back then. I th and I would have to imagine that the way a country constructs its nuclear arsenal and how it intends to deliver uh, nuclear weapons and uh, hostilities um, says a lot about their theory behind why they need, want, and, and have built a nuclear weapons capacity. Is that, a, is that a fair statement? I think it's a fair statement. Okay. So I would say if you look at... And you, we were just talking about South Asia, India, and Pakistan. If you take a look at the arsenals that India has... They have a more of a, a missile delivery capability. Uh, is that also deter to deter China to a certain extent? Of course. 
And then if you look at Pakistan, it's more of a tactical, quote-unquote, approach. Uh, I'm more no to longer deter. really clear on where Pakistan is. Okay, all right. Uh, with India, India also has a very robust civilian space and missile uh, industry okay. and program. And there's been a long uh, back and forth between civilian space capabilities and the ability to deliver a nuclear warhead uh, via missile. Okay. So let's let's actually move to China. We just mentioned China. Uh, China seems to be making some pretty serious moves in in uh, expanding their nuclear deterrent capacity. Some three hundred new missile silos being built in the Western Desert in China. If we go back to game theory a bit, uh, in a direct negotiation with China over nuclear arms reductions, uh, assuming we could actually get them to the table, uh, that doesn't seem like it's in China's plans right now. Um, what what is it that they're trying to accomplish, and how would you uh, approach that? situation with China if you were to go to an arms negotiation with them right now? Well, if I was going to try and get China to the table, I would have to recognize, if I'm, if I'm in the United States or if I'm Moscow, I have to recognize China's got a, a, an ace in its hand. Saying, um, if Washington or Moscow comes to me and says, we want to talk about the number of, uh, about your nuclear weapons program, as Beijing, I'll play that ace every time, saying, I've got 300. Yeah. You've got 5,000. Right. When you're down to my neck of the woods, we'll talk. Okay. So if you want to talk before that next big tranche of reductions in the two major powers, uh, nuclear inventories, you're going to have to restructure the term of discussion. And I think... And then I'm going to draw on uh, Robert, uh, Michael Crepon's book, where he's talking about norms. And I think we have to talk about norms with China. Okay. And that that means a little fuzzier. It won't be a treaty. There probably won't be verification. It certainly won't be um, the enforceable um, pie in the sky that the Trump administration wanted. But it increases stability. And ultimately, that's one of the great uh, virtues and benefits of arms control, increasing stability. Yeah, because if we all know that it's a mutual assured destruction, uh, then you have a sort of status quo that you function from, and anything you can do to create greater stability means a less likelihood of mutual assured, assured destruction. Correct. So on the China thing, even though they are building these 300 new missile silos in the Western Desert, when you talk about game theory, they, that's more of a deterrent function. It's a it's a targeting uh, quandary for the United States, say, if that was their threat axis that they were most concerned about, because you can't not target all of them simultaneously if you decide you're going to try and remove the threat. Correct. Um, although, again... Um Silo-based um, missiles, by definition, are fixed in location. Right. At least the silo is. Oh, right, right, exactly. Uh, it's, it'd be possible, and I've seen there's proposals, well, the Chinese are building 300 more silos, but they're not going to build 300 more missiles, although, or they're not going to arm them all with nuclear. And we had talked about some of those theories back in the Reagan administration. I think, Correct, where you dense remove, pack. Right, and you'd move different weapons around to different silos and sort of play a shell game. Yeah, yeah, racetrack and dense pack, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, now, those were both rejected by the Reagan administration because 
they're not very effective approaches. Uh, provided you can, you're allowed to, be, provided you can, and are allowed to build those missiles, you might as well put a missile in the silo. Because you've already got the silo. You've already there. got the silo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the racetrack was an artifact of the arms control treaties, in, in very in, in a lot of respects. Now for China, you know they want to have a stable deterrent. And how they're approaching it is not necessarily going to match up with how the Russians and the Americans came up with a stable deterrent. Right. And so, again, this is where it's very valuable to have these discussions and have a better understanding of, okay, you're doing this to build a stable deterrent, not build up a first strike force. Right. Great. Okay, that we, that we can deal with. Because now we understand their theory. Now we understand their theory. Yeah. Uh, but it's difficult to get politicians and even diplomats to have that type of, of strategic stability discussion. Now, yeah. we had them under Trump. Um, well, they'd been kind of vague. They were supposed to, they were to be restarted under the Biden administration. Obviously, they're on hold right now. Sure. Yeah. So, Alan, we, we only have about uh, not very seven minutes right. left, and then we probably need to call it quits. Uh, Jeff will cut us off at that point. Uh, you study this concept of arms reductions, nuclear deterrence, how the U.S. stacks up against our foreign competitors, uh, or, or even kind of, I would say, to a certain extent, an open adversary like, like Russia has become uh, today. As you study this complex problems you know, throughout your career of uh, nuclear deterrence, uh, and even in your retirement now, uh, what's your take on the need for maintaining a nuclear triad as part of America's uh, nuclear deterrent strategy? Do we need a triad anymore? Speaking very objectively, yeah, uh, as not a former Air Force officer, <laughs> no. Okay, and, and what? So, what would be your option uh, to to can maintain a, a credible nuclear deterrent uh, in, in a modern way? Um, now, there are people who will tell you ultimately, even U.S. Navy submarines will be vulnerable, but they are not at this point. Yeah, and they are clearly not as vulnerable um, as the missile silos in the Great Plains, in the heart of America. In the heart of America, next to our next to our wheat fields, right, and corn fields. Uh, those submarines uh, are mobile, uh, knowing exactly where they are at any given time for an adversary is uh, reduced compared to a silo. There is not um, the use-or-lose doctrine associated with the, uh, the submarine-launched missiles or the, the bomber aircraft. One of the uh, inst- unstable factors of U.S. deterrent policy is if we see a large number of missiles coming toward our missile fields, well, they're about to be lost. So you have to use them. You have to, have to use them. That is not a stable situation where there have been repeated instances in in the past of mistakes by both sides thinking that there are missiles coming in. Yeah. And we've been fortunate so far, but they're not really the most stable of uh, artifacts. Mm -hmm. And there was, for example, even the accident down in Arkansas in 1980 with the Titan missile Mm -hmm. where a warhead was ejected from a silo after an explosion. Right, right. Um, 
like France, like Britain, moving toward a um, deterrent force that is more exclusively focused on the uh, ballistic missile submarines, I think would be stabilizing. Is that going to happen? I think the politicians will block it. Yeah, I think there are there are a lot of and this this one always sort of strikes me as odd, right? If you're a politician who has missile fields in your state, uh, and you continue to fight for maintenance of those silo-based uh, nuclear deterrent in your state, you're you're saying, I want to invite a nuclear massive nuclear strike on the people in my state. But I've got good jobs until then, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so, Alan, we've a couple minutes left. Any anything we haven't covered today that you think uh, the listeners should know about? Any books or uh, papers that you think that they should uh, be aware of that they might want to read more about? Yes, yes. There's uh, this gets ongoing and continuous coverage in the United States media, just not necessarily uh, the mainstream uh, New York Times, Washington Post. We'll sure. only pick up ones. There are some uh, great books on this. I mentioned the author Michael Crepon who talks about arms control writ large. Mm-hmm. It's a 600-page book, but it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> uh, Rose Gottemuller, the chief negotiator for the U.S. for the New START Treaty, wrote a, an acclaimed book last year on negotiating the New START Treaty. Okay. Uh, the historical basis for all this is a book by Schelling, Thomas Schelling and Morton Halperin back in 1961 called Strategy and Arms Control. Okay. That's still really kind of the defining basis. And then... There are a lot of organizations that write on nuclear weapons and have Zoom conferences on nuclear weapons if you're interested in these sorts of things. I'm going to mention uh, just a few of the really good ones here. The Nuclear Threat Initiative. Okay. The Arms Control Association. The Union of Concerned Scientists. And, of course, the Bolton of the Atomic Scientists. Okay. They're the ones with the uh, famous clock. How close are we to midnight? Oh, right. I think it advanced a little bit more only recently. Uh, actually, this year it stated 100, 100 seconds. Oh, it did. Okay. All right. So down to 100 seconds until the end of mankind. Correct. Alan Carlson, thank you so much for joining us again today on National Security This Week on that very positive note. Uh, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for making the drive down from uh, Stillwater. Thanks for inviting me. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.